in all of my companies from the beginning of time. People want to know what's the org chart, and I draw a big circle at the top. I draw a line down, and I draw a small circle. I said, here's our org chart. Customers at the top, we're at the bottom. We take care of the customer. We've got a great job. We've got a great opportunity. We've got a great future. So it's always been put the customer first, and I've installed that from the bank to the software companies to anything I've been a part of. If you truly take care of the customer, everything else kind of falls into place. You're listening to David Becker, CEO of First Internet Bank Corp. David is my guest on this episode of Michael Loves Indy. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Michael Loves Indy. As many of you know, I have a day job. I'm CEO of the Indy Chamber of Commerce, which is also an economic development organization made up of over 2,000 business members. So I'm fortunate that throughout my days, I get to have a lot of conversations with business owners and executives, and all of them have unique stories about how they built their business or their organization. But sometimes I hear a story so crazy that I've just got to... Um, record it for posterity. And one such story is the story of First Internet Bank Corp and David Becker. I was sitting next to David at a basketball game, and he was telling me the story about how he founded the first branchless, all-virtual bank in the 1990s against a lot of skepticism and criticism. And I was just like, we got to capture this, David. So a little bit about our guest. David Becker is chairman and CEO of First Internet Bank Corp., a bank holding company with assets of approximately $4.5 billion as we stand here in 2022. He has a 40-year career of creating successful entrepreneurial companies in financial services technology and in software as a service. Uh, He's a very charitable individual, and his family is very charitable. They've donated millions of dollars to people in need over the years. He has served on the boards of many uh, not-for-profit organizations which aim to make the Indianapolis region better. And uh, I think one of the things I took away from this interview I was really inspired is David's got a passion for solving problems and a curiosity that has continued to really propel him forward. And he's very practical in the way that he talks about business and technology companies and things like that. So um, I hope you will be as inspired by this conversation as I was. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with David Becker. Well, thanks for making the time this afternoon. And I, David, I had no plan except just to capture, I, I mean, I think the story of First Internet Bank, it's made such a huge impact on our city and our region, but obviously um, you've impacted literally hundreds of companies. But you, we were at a basketball game and you started telling me the story <laughs> and I was like, this is too crazy and out there. I need, to, I need to capture this for posterity. So thanks for indulging me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Happy to do it. So we're sitting here in um, First Internet Bank's new building on 116th Street in downtown Fishers. Um, but I guess before I um, dive into kind of the, the story and, and your vision, I do want for people listening who might not know you, um, could you talk a little bit about your upbringing and any early experiences that might have given a clue that this would, <laughs> this would be your life? Uh, yeah, early clues would have said I would never, ever be a banker because as we were 
ringing the bell on Wall Street, my son was chirping in my ear, Dad, the last thing I ever thought you would do is take a bank public because all you've done is custom your whole life as an entrepreneur. So, uh, But yeah, I grew up here in Indianapolis, uh, born at Methodist Hospital, uh, grew up, started out in Eagledale, over on the uh, kind of near west side, just north of the Indianapolis 500 track, or track went to uh, public school 61. Um, about seventh grade, both of my parents grew up out in the country. My mother on a tobacco farm in Kentucky and my dad, uh, the Badlands, North Dakota, uh, running 800 head of cattle. So uh, they went to go to the country. And in the seventh grade, I moved to Monrovia, Indiana. And I thought, oh, my God, where am I? <laughs> I had 40 of my closest friends within 100 yards of my house. And now the, the closest um, children my age were over a half a mile away from where we were staying. But it, it turned out I fell in love with Monrovia and the country and uh, small rural school. Uh, my graduating class in high school was 72 students. Uh, post-graduation, four of us went on to college. Two of us got out. So it was uh, kind of an interesting game. Um, my father will go back and, and would tell the story that I probably became independent at the age of nine. I had an Indianapolis Times newspaper route. Uh, there was once upon a time an afternoon newspaper here in the city, and I would start delivering newspapers. And I learned early on if uh, I wanted more money, all I had to do was sell more newspapers. I won trips. I did a bus trip to Washington, D.C. with uh, 20 other newspaper carriers here in central Indiana uh, in the uh, sixth grade. So... It kind of set the seed, I guess, for the entrepreneurial spirit, and I learned that I could truly control my destiny. So went on from there. Once we got out to the country in Monrovia, I worked uh, part-time at the Gasper Grocery Store, which today you would call a convenience store, but gas pumps in the front, uh, hardware store, grocery store, sold saddles, uh, worked on lawnmowers, I mean, anything and everything. It was a all-in-one little country store, uh, put up hay in the summer times. Um, cleaned a lot of barns over the years, but uh, not the best work, but it uh, but paid uh, by far the best salary. So that was kind of the game. Uh, when I was graduating high school, I wanted to go into college. Uh, my parents weren't in a position uh, to cover anything for me on school. I was the first one on either side of the family, mother or father's side, to want to attend college. So I uh, had no connections to get into a military academy. The Coast Guard Academy is totally based on merit and interviews and uh, scholastics, et cetera. So I started the process with 10,000 other kids to get into the Coast Guard Academy. Actually made it. Uh, I made the cut to the final 400, and I was enthralled with the idea of jumping on a three-masted schooner, sailing down the coast. That was kind of summer school. They'd go as far south as they could, turn around to get you back into uh, Connecticut in, in time for classes to start. And then all of a sudden, a light bulb went off in my head that said, you know, this is 1971, Vietnam War is going on. First guy that told me to scrub a floor with a toothbrush, I'd probably tell him where to put the toothbrush, and I'd be on the next boat to Vietnam. So I uh, decided that wasn't the right idea. Talked to my guidance counselor. Long story short, her husband had gone to DePaul University. She goes, hey, it's half hour down the road. Let's go talk to him, see what we can do. And I wound up getting a rector scholarship full ride to DePaul University. Oh, and, wow. So kind of the rest of it was history. Um, I uh, 
graduated DePaul thinking I was going to go on to law school, so I skipped all the job uh, interviews and programs, and about two weeks before graduation decided, yeah, I don't really want to do that after all. Uh, so I wound up working with a headhunter, got a job with GECC back in the Jack Welsh days, kind of view that as kind of my working MBA, and, uh, and GE, I took over an office uh, that was ranked like 300 and 40 out of 360 offices in the country. In 18 months, I'd moved it to number two in the U.S. It was supposedly set up uh, my file uh, earmarked for uh, uh, corporate office material, and I just hit a wall. I was stuck in South Bend, Indiana in 1978 when the blizzard hit, and all I could see was yeah. snow for six months, and I was ready to get out of there. So again, impulsive move, called my boss, said, uh, hey, find me an opportunity, and uh, he couldn't. I said, you got 90 days and I'll find something. Was, not to interrupt, but mm-hmm. was, there, was there anything in the work that they had you doing that, was, that sparked an interest that you thought, um, you know, this could, this could lead to something? Or? Well, I, I, yeah, I absolutely love the work at GECC. And I, my boss gave me a lot of rope, anything but a micromanager. And I actually, I would say I've inherited some of his management practices over the years. But uh, I had a lot of opportunity um, two years with a company. I was in an average position where the average seniority is 25 years. So I got to advance very quickly. And I think that's where I kind of hit the wall because I, I wasn't getting challenged with new opportunities and new programs. I uh, <laughs> was running an office out of South Bend. I opened a branch facility, hired an employee in Fort Wayne because I developed a lot of business in Fort Wayne and thought I could even do more. If I had somebody on the ground and I told my boss about it after I had done it all, he goes, wait a minute, you can't sign a lease on behalf of GE corporate. You, you just can't do that. I said, Frank, here's all the results. He says, okay, okay, we'll, we'll backdate it. We'll get the forms in order. He couldn't argue with the end result. But had I waited for the corporate world to opine on it, sign off on it, it would have probably never happened. Yeah. So, Wow. So that was 1978. That was point. 1978, correct. And uh, he did not come up with an opportunity for me. So I came um, back to Indianapolis. Actually, the predecessor who was running the office in South Bend had gone to work for the Indiana Credit Union League Trade Association. And I thought, didn't know a whole lot about it credit unions, but I'd learned a ton about finance during my days at GE. So I came back to Indianapolis, um, got a job thinking that would just be a kind of a stopgap measure for me. Uh, turned out, loved it, uh, did very, very well. Um, was writing articles that were published on a national basis. I was consulting all over the Midwest, uh, really enjoying it. Uh, saw an opportunity to start a computer services company to kind of at that point in time, 1978-79, credit unions were uh, buying time on a large insurance company or Merchants Bank, which was local at the time, uh, was selling services, key punch services. They'd, do, they'd fill out tickets at the credit union, send them into Indianapolis, they get punched in the computer, they get weekly reports. It was all batched, nothing in a real-time environment. I found a software, well, <laughs> I got called into the uh, boss's office because I had... Um, complained about the products and the credit unions didn't really have the tools as I was working across the state. And he said, well, you got one of two choices, uh, find an alternative or shut up and do your job. And (laughs) don't say, because technically these folks are kind of paying your salary through the services court. So I took six months, found a piece of software, wrote a business plan, made a presentation to the EFT services committee. Uh, When I was done, uh, they spent about 45 minutes not 
arguing or debating whether it was a good or bad plan, just trying to figure out, well, should we do this in services corp? Should it be part of the league? We don't know what we're doing. And I literally uh, stood up in true Hoosier fashion, whistled, gave a timeout sign and said, I'm going to go do it myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I need to, I need to pause here. This is, to, this is part of what, so let me go back a little bit. So when, you know, you, um, what turned you on at first to finance and, you know, business finance, because, you know, you've, um, you know, I think we both know a lot of people who they've been studying high finance at like, you know, and deposit grade school, but, you know, at, at, you know, you know, Harvard MBAs and things <laughs> like that. And, um, who, who haven't had the experiences that you've had, I guess, what, I want to ask about finance and I want to ask about literally programming because you've, you, you know, it's clear that early on your interest or your curiosity helped you develop some, you know, in some different areas, um, in a way that I think is kind of unusual. So what was it that, what was it that hooked you, um, early on about, um, finance and, you know, uh, helping businesses grow and. Yeah, actually it's, uh, <laughs> I'm a political science major, uh, again, thinking I was going to go on to law school. I had taken a couple econ classes, a second semester senior. I finally took an uh, accounting 101 class. And I was just fascinated with uh, the whole bookkeeping aspect and tracking and numbers. Uh, and when I got the opportunity to go to work with GECC, uh, Jack Welsh was running the show. And they spent a ton of money on education for all of their middle management or management trainees. I was in a, some kind of correspondence class at that point. We obviously didn't have online. I'd get a, a workbook and I'd do the studies and over the course of the month send them in. Quarterly, we got together for training classes. So I really view my three years at GE as a working MBA. Yeah. Again, my boss gave me a lot of flexibility and I was just fascinated by uh, how very simple tasks were becoming very complex, yeah. mostly because people made them that way. And I always seem to have kind of an innate ability to see the trees and not the forest. Yeah. And I could fix things and I could change things. And, you know, uh, tools I learned in the collection process at GE, everybody in the credit union space who generally didn't have a lot of problem loans, just thought I was a wizard because I knew all these things. So uh, one kind of fed off the other. And just the frustration, uh, 1979, technically credit unions, uh, Reg Q disappeared. And uh, banks had a five-year phase-out period. Credit unions instantly were deregulated Red overnight. Q, Red Q was. Red Q. Uh, it, it structured rates that you could charge on products and services. Yeah. Uh, so all of a sudden overnight, credit unions had ultimate flexibility. Banks were still pretty governed on what they could and could not do. Like credit unions could overnight open up money markets and pay about any rate they wanted to. Wow. Banks couldn't do that. So. They had a truly competitive edge, but they didn't have the technology to do it. And I found a group in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, that had taken some savings and loan software, modified it for the credit union industry. Uh, the big stick in the credit unions, particularly in the 70s, you were a member, not a customer, because it was owned by the depositors. That was the big distinction. In fact, um, the first company I started on the software side was RE colon member. Uh, remember data services playing off of the EDS. I was RDS. And uh, so it uh, uh, came out, uh, as I said, I walked out of the meeting, uh, called the gentleman up in Michigan and said, Hey, Don, that it didn't go the way I thought. I'd like to uh, come up and talk to you about maybe buying some time on your systems. 
until I got enough customer base that I could actually buy the software from you and so start what, my own what data gave, center. What, what gave you the confidence at a young age that, I mean, that, that again, that's another part of the story I just think is kind of extraordinary. What, because, you know, today in 2022, there's a good percentage of the population who thinks that software and computers is just magic. That was much more the case <laughs> at this time period. So what, 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 um, what gave you sort of the clarity or the and or the confidence that this was um, something that was possible? Yeah, well, when I was doing the research, I stumbled onto the guys up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. For as I stated earlier, most of the credit union industry operating in what was called a batch environment. They were literally working on sometimes day old, but normally week old trial balances and files, and they were memo posting everything uh, and. To me, it was kind of ludicrous. I knew enough about computer industries. I did have one class at DePaul. In fact, uh, long story short, I got kicked out of the computer lab uh, because I knocked a terminal over. thought I'd broke it, and I had to pay my fraternity brothers to punch my program, and I swore I would, uh, so I could get through the class, and I swore I'd never have anything to do with computers in my life. So at the age of 27, I was starting a computer services company, but... um, I could just see with the power of the computer, just mundane tasks that people were dealing with could all be automated. And then yeah. they could really service the customers. They could offer better products. They could be better consultants and work with their customers. And to me, it was just a natural. Uh, but over the years, we, we really broke some milestones. We had the first online real-time ATM machine that truly operated off the customer's balance, not some hot card file that was basically giving anybody 100 bucks a day as long as you weren't... Uh, a bad egg. Uh, we brought uh, check uh, processing. We were the first ones to uh, process checks for the credit unions. Uh, they got authority May 15th, 1982. We were running checks uh, within a week uh, directly to the Federal Reserve. So we set a lot of online real-time milestones to me to compete with the products that were out there made no sense because to me, everything was going to move to real time. And I guess I had that vision 30 years before the rest of the world caught on. <laughs> well, and again, uh, there's something, I mean, and it's, it's, um, it's obvious when you talk about it, there's, I want to see if there's a link back to your childhood because it's clear, like a lot of people have jobs and their job is to solve certain problems. But it seems like as you kind of tell these stories about, um, you know, um, what makes credit unions work better and then what are the, you know, how to, what are the information systems to enable that and that, that it's, that it's, I mean, it's sort of a thing that's always driving you. You're, I mean, that um, that you get a. It seems like you get a certain satisfaction from solving these problems and moving on to the next problem, moving on to the next problem that maybe the average, you know, person working in one of these firms wouldn't have. Is that a? That's an absolute fair statement. Uh, in fact, <laughs> let me do a lot of interviewing uh, for new employees nowadays. But uh, what I would absolutely tell everybody I was interviewing: if um, you want a nine to five job, you're going to come in every day and do the same thing over and over again. This is the wrong place. Absolutely the only constant that we have in this company is change. And I felt that from day one that uh, you had to be reinventing yourself on a daily basis. And like you said, uh, going from one problem to the next. And um, a lot of people and over the years have had a, uh, obviously some success and had an opportunity to look at probably four to 500 business plans. 
And I would tell you a lot of the business plans are solutions looking for a problem. Mm -hmm. And instead of finding a problem and creating a solution. So um, the absolutely the best motivating factor that I've had in my lifetime is for somebody to tell me you, you can't do that. Yeah. And that's just did, did some of this up. Did some of your your willingness to like because that's one thing anybody who knows you knows when necessary, you will get in the weeds. <laughs> you will get below yeah. the weeds. <laughs> Is some of that go back to maybe your parents and your kind of experience in farming and thing, things like that? Sort of no, no problem is too small. You know, I'll, I'll dive in. Yeah, and I, I, I think a lot of people have asked me why I do, you know, it's like I perpetually think outside the box. And I said, I think it goes back to my childhood. Um, my parents gave me a tremendous amount of flexibility, a tremendous amount of independence, they would tell, you know, David, here's what needs to get done. You just figure out how to get it done. Um, you play within these guidelines, everything's cool. And so I never really knew there was a box. Wow. And I was just that game. If I had to do X amount of garden, it's almost back to a Tom Sawyer, Huck Fan. I'd get a couple neighbor kids and say, hey, I can go play ball, but we got to do this first. And I'd get them to come help me and yeah. <laughs> figure it out and cut the job in half. I'd uh, uh, learn how to speed up the lawnmower. I could mow grass a little bit faster. Uh, and that was kind of my task. I knew what I had to do, and I just went out and figured out what was the most efficient way to get it done. Yeah. Uh, so it, it really does go back to childhood. Same thing on the newspaper route. Um, when I was doing the Indianapolis Times, I started with a Stingray bicycle, which was kind of cool at the time, the banana seat and the high handlebars, uh, but slow as all get out. So I traded it in for 10 speed. I was able to get through the route 20 minutes faster, able to sell more customers, expanded. So it was great. ingrained. So I keep interrupting the kind of the chronology, but I think we're at, you, you've formed Remember or R, RDS, um, and, uh, at, you know, in, in your, still in your twenties, yep. if that's right. Um, and so what, what was, what's the next, next chapter, um, at that point? Yeah, I took RDS, uh, started here in, in state of Indiana. As I said, I walked out of the, the meeting room, uh, put together a list of 25, uh, potential credit unions in the state that I thought could be customers. And, uh, over the next three years, I actually got 23 out of the 25 as customers and, uh, uh, it was pretty much a rip-roaring success. Uh, in my mind, when I wrote the business plan and stuff, I thought, you know, if I could ever get up to a million dollars a year in sales, that would just be out of the park. I did that in nine months, and it just blossomed from there. Again, working with Wesco, being nationally kind of known in the credit union industry, I heard about other data centers that were in trouble or folks that had problems. Uh, Don had also sold his software to a group in um, Philadelphia, and they were in trouble. So I bought that company, merged them in. Uh, shortly after I'd started my company, Travelers Express, a division of Greyhound Dial Corporation, had tried to buy me. Uh, Anacom tried to buy me back in the day, and neither one of them were appealing, and Travelers Express, a gentleman, when I turned him down, he said, well, I'm going to start a company, and we're going to run you out of business. I said, happy to have the competition Three years later, he was back. They had started a company. It was hitting the wall, and I bought his company and added it onto mine. So uh, we got outside the state of Indiana. We were growing leaps and bounds. 1996, after watching my son, who was a teenager at the time, we were living on Geist, spend the weekend doing research on a computer, and got enamored with the Internet. And I thought, there's got to be a tool in here. Uh, that I can use to deliver financial services. So I literally sat at the kitchen table and said, if I wanted to bank from here, what would I need? What would I need to do? 
And so I started working on it, bringing my neighbors over, anybody I could get to talk to me and said, hey, we're sitting here. What, what services do you want to see? What do you want to do? And literally created Wi-Fi, set at the old Dalton restaurant at Keystone at the crossing at the time, brought back a gentleman who had worked for me, left RDS because he wanted to work with uh, PCs and laptop computers, which were brand new at the time, uh, drew out a map of the services that I'd like to provide in an online environment. Uh, he took the uh, placemat home, uh, studied it for a week or so, came back, and we had lunch again. He said, if you can sell it, I can build it. So was the was the ideal client, because, you know, you, you've talked multiple times about focus on the problem, you know, don't be, was the ideal client at the time a business, or was it a, a consumer, or was it both? It was a little bit of both. The credit union industry was really starting to, you know, by the time the 90s rolled around, uh, Back in the 70s and early 80s when I got engaged, they, it was called the credit union movement. It was still people working out of uh, a toolbox on the, on the shop floor, and they'd collect monies, and then they'd take them to an office or the, the union halls a lot of times would front end the credit unions. Well, by the 90s, the credit unions were actually established, and they had management teams. They had full-time staff. It wasn't a volunteer. They'd moved, uh, as I said, from the bathroom to the boardroom. They went from being a movement to an industry. And uh, there was just tremendous opportunity for them to grow quickly. And again, payroll deduction uh, was their number one way to get deposits. It was a segment of your check would be automatically deposited every week at the credit union. And uh, I thought the Internet would allow them to expand the services and the reach of the, uh, to the customers without having to put up brick-and-mortar infrastructure. Yeah. So tremendously lower cost, um, much more efficient, and enable them to pay higher fees and uh, not charge all the service charges that banks were. It gave them a tremendous competitive edge. At this time, did you find that you had kind of allies around the world or people thinking similar things that you could kind of bounce ideas off of? Um, was, there a, was, there a, was there yet um, an Internet banking you know, community or thought leadership out there? Or? Uh, absolutely not. When I started Wi-Fi, there was one other company that was just starting up on the West Coast called Digital Insight, and we were the first two to bring that kind of middleware product that would tie the old banking legacy systems to the Internet. And uh, it, we were the lone wolves out there. There was most folks thought we were crazy. Uh, the other vendors uh, wouldn't allow me to interface into their software products because they were afraid if I brought this new internet thing to their space, then I would ultimately steal the back office uh, product as well. Uh, so, um, yeah, we were blazing trails on a daily basis. Uh, but once the customers. Um, <laughs> the, the ideal way to, to I would sell it was demonstrating uh, I had got my credit union to set up the product, and I'd go into another credit union office, and I would bring the management team and the staff in to give them a demo of the product, and absolutely everybody in there loved it. And, and, and then you think about it that, hey, you know, a big uh, client of mine was Delco Remy Solidarity Credit Union up in Kokomo. They had three shifts of workers, and they would have people lined up at the door coming off third shift when they opened at 7.30 in the morning because they needed to transact with the credit union. I said, they, they can do it anytime, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it uh, slowed down lobby traffic. It just changed the whole way that they did business. It was real-time access to people that um, really 
couldn't get to the credit union during normal business hours. So, what, what did you call this platform at the time? Uh, Fi Virtual Financial Services. Okay. Okay. And this is so this and this was a platform you sold to credit unions, but literally any bank could. Yeah, credit unions and, and small community banks all across the country. We wound up, um, we launched the company in 1996. I sold it in 2001, Digital Insight, my um, uh, partner out on the West Coast. Uh, they had gone public before the tech bubble bust. Uh, so he had a little more cash. He obviously was a public company, could raise capital. Uh, I was growing like crazy. We went from 1996 to no sales. In 19, or 2001, just four years later, uh, we were on path in 2001 to do about $40 million in revenue. It had grown leaps and bounds. Uh, they came in, made the proverbial offer that I couldn't refuse, uh, 50 times EBITDA. I mean, it was just a, a number <laughs> out, out of uh, uh, it was crazy. So um, in the, we... Uh, it was funny. We got into the 11th hour negotiations on the, the selling cycle, and the CEO comes in. He goes, Dave, I got bad news. I just finished a board meeting, and we got to cut the sales price by $10 million. I said, John, that's not going to happen. We agreed to the number a month ago, and I told you, you, you can't back off. Well, I'm sorry, but that's what the board said. I said, well, I, I got two comments. Well, my, my team and I are packing up to go back to Indianapolis, uh, and we call this deal off. I want you to call your vice president of sales. I said, six of your top 10 customers right now, their contracts are up for negotiation and they're looking at new services and ask your salesman how many of those six he thinks he's going to get. Because I knew I had four out of the six landed and the other two were on the cusp. <laughs> and so he disappears again, no cell phones at that point in time. He comes back uh, about 45 minutes later. He said, Dave, Dave, please don't go home. Uh, we'll, we'll stick with the original sales price. Uh, we, we got it. We're, we're okay. <laughs> so... One one pause that I have is, you know, I think when when people would think of sales process, you wouldn't be the first person they they've thought of. They think of, you know, I mean, you're not a salesy person, and yet from a young age, you know, you're selling very fast. You're having companies whose revenues grow very fast. Um, this is more of a personal thing, but did you find that that sales process was something that came somewhat naturally to you, or was that something that, you know, did you have to sort of work it over time? Was it something that required you to, you know, team with other people? I do, I do find it's like successful entrepreneurs, everyone, literally everyone I know, they're multifunctional. You know what I mean? They, yeah. every, literally everyone I know knows some finance, knows some operations, knows some sales, and they're sort of comfortable switching. Is that, is that something that you've always had or did that come to you over time? No, I've always enjoyed it. I, I love the sales marketing aspect of it. i um, love taking a vision and an idea and turn it into a product. And as you say, I, I would get down in the weeds. When I first started the company, I would crawl around crawl spaces and basements of buildings and uh, string cable and drill holes through the floor to wire up the terminals at the front desk. There, there wasn't anything uh, that an employee in the company could do that I couldn't do as well in the early days. And I just thoroughly enjoyed it and watching it all kind of come together and then Love the day that the, the product went live. I'd, I'd always be on site the day that they came onto our services on Monday morning and running the teleline, uh, solving problems, issues that there were any, and just watching kind of the joy at both the customer level, our customer level, as well as their customers. And um, no, I've always enjoyed it. And I, I never, um, you have the stereotype of the used car salesman and just heavy, heavy pressure sales. To me, 
sales have kind of come naturally. It's just we always had great products supported by great people, and it kind of sold itself. All I had to do was make an introduction and let it roll. And, uh, and see, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make an inference too, based on your earlier comment. It seems like you're somebody who's very attentive to the problem of the potential customer. I'm just picturing you going in and you're going to know something. And this is from some of the stories that you've told already. You're already going to know a good amount from the client or the client's point of view about what the problem is. is that- well, particularly back with the RDS, uh, I had been a consultant to all of my customers for three years and trying to help them run their operations. In fact, uh, one presentation, Solidarity Credit Union, again in uh, Kokomo, Bill Hanna was the CEO. When it came time for the vote, he said, gentlemen, I'm going to step out of the room. He said, I don't really feel, he said, I know Dave, I've worked with him over the last three years. He said, I don't think it's really fair for me to sit in here and uh, sway your decision in any way, shape, or fashion. But I will leave with this comment. He's probably knows more about our institution than I do, being real honest. And if he says this is going to help us, I believe him 110%. So we walked out the door. Five minutes later, we were called back in. It was a unanimous vote to go with our service. Yeah. So why why wouldn't you, even with you know Wi-Fi and the sale of Wi-Fi, why wouldn't you have continued as a technology provider for banks? What what led you to say I want to be a bank? Well, it, <laughs> we had our SBA team here in the city. Uh, new division we started a couple of years ago. And these folks are scattered all over the United States. So uh, yesterday I was kind of giving them a little story on uh, how I got into banking. And uh, as I told them, I, I did it because, uh, as my, I told you earlier, my son said, Dad, you hated bankers because I was trying to, uh, in the very early stages, get lines of credit to help me buy equipment and sell. And I had no hard assets from the perspective of a banker. It was all intellectual property. It was all lines of code. Uh, it was Greek to them. They didn't understand that financing based on cash flow, uh, SaaS models as we have out here today. Uh, so it was tough for me to work with a banker. I was working 10, 12, 14 hours a day. I was never available during banking hours. Um, in 1996, I had the idea. I had three companies at that point. I had RDS, I had Wi-Fi, and I had OneBridge. And OneBridge... Uh, RDS was the core, Wi-Fi was the internet connectivity, and OneBridge tied the ATM credit and debit cards together in a real-time environment. So I went to actually First Indiana Bank, uh, made a presentation to them. They were one of the last large banks standing in Indiana at that point of how they could go nationwide and do it electronically. Um, Made about a three-hour presentation. Bud and his team were very attentive. Um, They loved it. And at the end of the presentation, Bud Melton said, Dave, that's, that's a great idea, but it just, it, it will never work. It can't be done. <laughs> so again, somebody's telling me it's impossible. So we're standing at the elevator and I'm talking to my salesman. He goes, uh, what are you going to do now? I said, well, if they don't think it can be done, I'm going to start a bank. And uh, he goes, what do you know about banking? I said, well, I didn't know anything about computers when I started software companies and it seems to work out okay. So we're going to go do a bank. So what what were the objections at the time, you know, in the traditional banking industry? Because I'm sure I'm um, I'm sure there were some of them that were probably pretty common. You know, here Bud Melton is someone who had been very successful over his career. What 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 were the common objections that people might throw out to you at the time? Well, just the whole idea that everything was done electronically and in a real time environment. They're so used to 
again, still doing batch activity. The tellers would go through transactions during the day, and at night in the back office, they'd run through what were called proof stations and reprocess all that work again to validate it in case the teller made an error. They couldn't believe that things could be touched and handled one time, or things could be done remotely and all off the internet. And as I tried to explain to the regulators when I was getting the bank charter, I used the analogy of Ray Kroc and McDonald's. I said, McDonald's didn't do anything in the early stages any different than any other hamburger shop. He cooked hamburgers, he fried french fries, but he allowed the customer to do self-service. And I said, that's what I'm doing in banking. Back office is going to be the same, but it's going to be self-service. And I, as the customer, will generate the transaction, and I can take my staff away from mundane tasks of making deposits or making a loan payment and let them actually create products and services to help out the customers. So it was just that whole concept that uh, there wasn't somebody checking and double-checking the transactions and activity, and they never thought the speed of the computer could function fast enough uh, to be able to do it in a real-time environment and keep the customer satisfied. I'm, I'm dying to know at the risk of going down a rabbit hole, but I think a, it seems like a lot of uh, technology providers and entrepreneurs would be scared to go the route that you went. Number one, banking is a heavily regulated industry. Number two, you're doing these transactions electronically not you know we know much more about security and information security than we did then um how you know do you recall how how you well you already knew a lot about the regulated environment from you know a couple decades of experience but you know on the the i think about the information it security and it starts to make my head spin you know <laughs> well one of the biggest problems in in issues in getting the charter was the regulators could not figure out why somebody who knew IT wanted to start a bank in 1999 when we're staring at Y2K. Everybody, if you remember back, thought the world was going to come to an end. Cars were going to stop in the middle of the highway. Elevators weren't going to work. Businesses were going to shut down because nobody could handle a four-digit year. Everything was going to turn back to 1900. So I think the regulators, as I was going through the application process, were totally convinced I was going to hit a magic number, punch a button, all the money would disappear and leave them holding the bag. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was a hard, tough sell at the time. To me, understanding the, the process, in fact, when I was uh, selling the idea of the bank when I was raising money when we launched, and I'd do a radio interview. I can remember a, a lady I was talking to in Miami, and uh, she goes, now, how do, you, how do you do all this stuff? Because I got a daughter who just got transferred to London. You're telling me she could keep her account here in your bank and do transactions from London? I said, yeah, sure. She goes, well, how do you do that? And so I said, go to the bank's website. I gave her my account number. I gave her my password. She goes, this is your account, and you just opened it up to me. I said, but you can't do anything. She goes, what do you mean I can't do anything? I could take your money. I said, no, you can't. I said, you could set up a bill pay. I'm going to I'll get a, an online notice that you've just set up a new bill pay account. I can kill it before you can do anything with it. I can change the password as soon as we get off the phone. You're not going to be able to get back in to begin with. I said, no, it is literally as secure as a teller station. In fact, better because of the robbers standing there with a gun. He's got nobody to shoot, nobody to push. So it, it really was a phenomenally secure system. When you take it down to the rawest element, there was really no way to – 
fraud. At that point in time, the hackers who had come in and steal my personal information, social security numbers, things of that nature, that, that industry hadn't started at that point in time. So it was really a closed-loop system. There was no way for an outsider to take any piece of my information and be able to do anything that was derogatory to me. Wow. Um, so the 1999, first, and you launched it under the name First Internet Bank. Bank. Correct. Um, at which which markets did you target? I mean, because I, then, then then the question that comes to mind is, wow, within the world of banking, there's so many verticals. Yeah. Um, so what what did you determine would be um, the areas of focus as you launched? Uh, when we launched in 1999, the area of focus was truly just the retail customer, the the average Joe. Uh, we did it. Uh, we launched it in John D. Rockefeller's offices on uh, Wall Street. I was looking out the window at the bull. We did the very first transaction at a Citibank ATM machine on the corner, one, to show that as a virtual institution, you could be anywhere and do the transaction. We did it through Citibank. We had great coverage. We did a what they call the virtual roadshow at the time, and we had 80 million consumers across the United States with all the media stuff that we were doing either saw, read, or heard something about First Internet Bank in that first kind of month of operations. Uh, we had a client in all 50 states within 90 days of opening the virtual doors. It just it took off like wildfire. It was uh, interesting. I was doing a presentation to the, the senior partners at Ernst & Young in Chicago at the time, and it was a smart conference room. It had uh, connectivity. They could plug in data ports. It wasn't Wi-Fi at the time, but they could plug into data ports at the tables they were sitting at, I saw guys in the back pecking on the keyboards. I was getting a little pissed up front thinking, come on, guys, give me 20 minutes to tell you the story, and you can do your email after I get out of here. Well, the reality was by the time I'd finished my presentation, like 10 of the folks in the room had signed up and opened an account because they were road warriors. They were on the road all the time having real-time access to financial data that they could do wherever they were at, whatever time it was available. I mean, it was it was an instant sell. So uh, we did national ads in um, USA Today uh, because that was the Traveler's newspaper. We do full-page ads, um, again, selling the convenience that wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, the bank was always with you. So wow. it was kind of a natural play, and it, it took off. And, it, and if memory serves me, you absorbed 2001, 2008, and just kept what what um, what what's behind the resiliency, you know, of the of the growth that you had because it it um, kind of defied, you know, um, or at least you know um, certainly survived um, through multiple recessions. Yeah, I think that the key to success there was um, a little bit our Midwest conservative roots. We weren't doing anything. We didn't go out in left field doing loans or products or services that uh, were very risky. We weren't chasing yield. We were making, we had such a low overhead uh, on very thin margins. We were making good money and we just stayed uh, kind of true to it. Then uh, uh, 07, 08, uh, when the housing market blew up, we actually bought little landmark savings bank that used to be down on the circle in Monument Circle. And uh, I went to the regulators and said, hey, uh, Jim Cooper is head of the Department of Financial Institutions. Jim, I want to merge in Landmark Bank because I want to get into the mortgage business, which scared him to death. And I said, uh, and, and by the way, they have a branch on Monument Circle. You always told me if I had a branch, you'd be a little more comfortable. So <laughs> that was my opening line to him. He goes, well, two things, Dave. Uh, he said, you know, 
the idea of getting into the mortgage, I don't understand. He said, you know, everybody's leaving the mortgage industry. It's blowing up. And I said, Jim, I've been a firm believer in my whole career when there's the greatest chaos is also the greatest opportunity. I said, everybody's getting out, but you're going to need a mortgage someday. I'm going to need a mortgage someday. To me, this is the ideal time to get in when everybody's running for the hills. And uh, then he comes back and the idea of a branch, he said, you've never had a branch that we're getting to the point that we think that might confuse you more than it would help you. <laughs> so for eight years, they wanted me to have an office. Now they don't want me to have an office. So, uh, and then we, we just continued doing that. In 07, we got into mortgages. Uh, Landmark was doing 60 million a year. Within 12 months, we were doing 60 million a month on a nationwide platform, not just central Indiana. We got into commercial real estate. We got into CNI lending as other banks were getting in trouble and the markets were imploding. We hired good people, good teams, and opened up new markets. And we've been doing that, uh, you know, ever since 08. Uh, went public in 2013. Uh, then we kind of turned up, once we had access to the capital markets again, we turned up the growth. And at uh, one point in time, we were growing at a billion dollars a year in assets. Jeez. I'm imagining as as you grew, so you're going from one, the you know the first virtual bank and you're growing. I'm imagining that customer service and, you know, fulfillment has got to be just a plus. Are there, are there, um, is there wisdom or, you know, strategies around customer service that have served you well, or that you hear yourself kind of, you know, preaching to, um, you know, your, uh, your departments and your teams? Yeah. In all of my companies from the beginning of time, people want to know what's the org chart. And I draw a big circle at the top I draw a line down and I draw a small circle. I said, here's our org chart. Customers at the top, we're at the bottom. We take care of the customer. We've got a great job. We've got a great opportunity. We've got a great future. So it's always been put the customer first. And I've installed that from the bank to the software companies to anything I've been a part of. If you truly take care of the customer, everything else kind of falls into place. Uh, we were winning accolades back when we first launched the bank in part because of the real-time connectivity and service. Uh, we truly build and still today the website. If you jump on and you want to find something, we try to make sure you can do that without going more than three clicks deep into the website, which is invaluable. There are some sites out there. You want to find something about a credit card program. You can be six, seven, eight clicks into it, and people will just get frustrated and give up. So we try to keep it very simple, uh, very intuitive, uh, we had what we called decision trees that we would take questions at customer service and we had a program in the background that would track them where we'd put up FAQs or frequently asked questions to the consumers so they could come on the website and uh, whatever the top five questions of the day were and it was live and it would literally change on a daily basis based on what our uh, customer service folks would put in. They could answer uh, probably most of the questions themselves. Uh, we were running... And have from day one what we call Coastal Business Day. We open at 8 on the East Coast, close at 5 p.m. on the West Coast. And we had secret uh, shoppers, services, uh, checking us for years in the early stages. Gomez was an online uh, company that uh, tracked retailers and banks, etc. And for the first seven, eight years in existence that Gomez was out there, we always won number one in customer service. We weren't a 24-7 shop, and it was a misnomer the folks that offer 24 7 customer service 2 a.m in the morning you're talking to a clerk that's just taking a message 
they don't know what they're talking about, don't know what you're talking about, they take down a message that generally is wrong, hand it off to somebody the next morning whose phone is lit up already. So it just, it was just fraught with problems and, and issues. So uh, by going online real time, in fact, when I started, I got sideways with the regulators because I hired branch managers, high level people to just answer the telephones because you never knew when you picked up the line, whether it was going to be a college kid with a $20 account or some small business owner who had a million dollars at the bank. So I wanted people that could think on their feet, handle the questions. And our salary per employee was double any traditional bank in the early days. But the, the result was people that could handle um, 98% of our calls in the early days were handled with one phone call. Wow. You were talking about as you diversified the, um, the bank's investments, you know, in the 2000s. Um, I, I certainly knew of you as someone who worked with startups and was central in the growth of a lot of our startups here in the Indianapolis region. Is that something that was there from the beginning of First Internet Bank, or is that something that came, came along later as you, as you diversified? Uh, I've always tried to help. I did learn in the regulatory world of the banking that most entrepreneurial companies, particularly at the early seed stage level, are not, quote, bankable. Uh, that's where I was always sideways with the bankers, being the entrepreneur, because uh, nobody would understand me, could understand. So a lot of the folks that I helped in the early stages, I, I honestly helped them out of my own pocket and became an individual investor in them. Now over time that we have size and scale that we are today, over $4 billion in assets, I have some flexibility to do things with startup companies uh, that I didn't at that point because I, I have the capital base, I have the earnings, and I can do a lot more than we could uh, back 20 years ago. But, yeah, and it's been a passion of mine. And as I told the SBA team yesterday, I said, this is like coming full circle for me. Uh, if you think about SBA, and obviously you guys do a lot of stuff in the chamber in the SBA arena, that is the ultimate small entrepreneur getting off the ground, uh, trying to start a business for the first time. And to me, that's just, that's, that's full circus, full circle run for me to get back to being able to service that clientele. Uh, we went from um, two and a half years ago, we could spell SBA, didn't know much more about it. Uh, we're on track this year to originate over 200 million loans all across the United States. So uh, yeah, it's a passion of mine, has been from the get-go. And it's even getting stronger on a daily basis. And uh, you've been more than generous with your time. I just have a couple of questions left, but, you know, related to your passion for helping entrepreneurs, um, I think I think I can say with some accuracy that um, you're, you've got some anti-establishment views when it comes to our political system and, you know, how the community is organized. And I think, you know, you've, um, through chairing the Community Foundation and, and, you know, trying to get us in the civic community to think differently, um, you know, you've, um, and, and you spend a, a tremendous amount of personal, your personal capital in this as well. I guess, um, how, how does that, how, you know, how, do, how does your, your view of how things do need, need to change in our city and in our country inform your work and, and vice versa? I think it goes back to the original statement. And, and I can truthfully say in 23 years of being at the bank, I've never been in a meeting where I heard the statement, well, we do it that way because that's the way we've always done it. And when I would get outside the, con outside the confines of my world and working and getting TechPoint off the ground, working with Central Indiana Community Foundation, et cetera, 
um, I would go into board meetings and it was like deja vu. Every board meeting was the same, the same issues and the same programs. And um, I would say, you know, I'll, I'll go back to when we had the, uh, the crisis, the instant reaction from the community foundation was, well, you know, we need to tell people financial crisis, our uh, assets have fallen 20%. We've lost money and we need to cut back. And normally you give 5% out of your account every year as part of the requirement. Well, let's drop it back to three and conserve the capital. And I said, guys, no, 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 that's dead wrong. Let's bump it up to seven and allow folks to give away seven. I said, right now, the nonprofit organizations that these people are helping, they're in dire straits. They're absolutely hitting the wall on a daily basis. And if we cut back their funding even more, the ripple effect is going to be staggering. I said, I think we can turn it into a plus. We bump it up to seven. I'm guessing there's only a handful, 10 to 15% that would go to seven. A lot of folks under their own thought process will stay at three. And I said, we'll be phenomenal. Goodwill we're going to build is just going to be phenomenal. And that's exactly how it turned out. There were a handful of folks that bumped it up to seven. Unbelievably appreciative that we did it. Everybody thought it was, oh, my God, how insightful. You're spot on. Giving us a flexibility, whether they used it or not, we look like champions. But everybody on the board, the immediate reaction was, oh, we got to hunker down. And again, in my world, it's greatest chaos, it's greatest opportunity. This is a, a time for us to shine. Let's go do something good for the community. Yeah. Well, my, my last question, and, uh, you know, this last question could probably be the subject of a whole other interview, so I kind of <laughs> hesitate to ask it. But, you know, um, this, this shows it is about Indianapolis. That's the common thread between all these conversations. And as you look at the next, you know, decade of Indianapolis, you know, you, you've shaped, um, obviously, the um, – entrepreneurial system in a significant way, you know, the, the community through your work at the community foundation, just as you look at from a 30,000 foot level at the, at Indianapolis and the Indianapolis region for the next 10 years, what are, what are some of your hopes? You know, what are, what are things you hope to see? What are things that you're, you know, trying to affect? I, th I think right now Indianapolis has a tremendous opportunity. We've weathered some unbelievable storms. Uh, we've had some unbelievable successes in, in very tough times over the last half a dozen years. I think it's a great opportunity for us to brag a little bit about some of the great things we've done here. What a great community we have. I've been asked by, I can't tell you, hundreds of people over time, why did you stay in Indianapolis? You, you can live anywhere you want. You could do anything you want. Why are you still working? Why are you still building things in Indianapolis? And I said, it's just because I love it. I love the city. There's tremendous opportunity here. We've got, uh, we don't have mountains and we don't have oceans, but we've got everything else. There's a, a cost of living, great educational facilities, and even the, I think the inner city schools are on track to uh, really improve things. And if we can get education right, I think the sky's the limit for us. And um, really, again, starting with the young folks, if you solve the education issues, you keep kids in school, you lower crime. It just, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, I think it's an opportunity instead of resting on our laurels of the last few years to really kick it into high gear and engage and let the rest of the world. We were a flyover state for years and years and years, as you well know. Uh, VCs, investment firms, private equity, they're coming into Indiana. We're having great success. The city of Fishers, you know, 10, 15 years ago, was 8,000 people. It's 100,000 plus. So uh, it's there's just shining successes, and it's time to let the world know and really, you know, put the foot forward. I think we can move the needle 
uh, tremendously over the next 10 years. I, I love the, the, you know, the, the discussion you said you were, you know, in with the community foundation, it's almost like coming out of the pandemic. It's almost inspires me and others to say, well, how can we take some more calculated risk and amp it up as opposed to right. retrenching and plan like plan offense right. uh, as, as part of this opportunity. Um, it, it's, it's been a real, it's been really inspiring for me to, to just kind of piece this together, both the story of first internet bank and your, um, your life before that. And David, I just appreciate you taking the time and, um, how can people find out more about first internet bank or about your, um, you know, charitable and philanthropic work? Uh, obviously Google's a wonderful tool out there today. <laughs> I think about everything I've done over the last 10 or 15 years is out there someplace. You can, uh, uh, dig it up first IB, uh, it's literally www.firstib.com and you can find all the banking services. Again, it's very intuitive. You can get history, you can get background, you can sign up for accounts or services if you're interested. Um, one of the neat things we've had for 20 plus years is all of our customer service agents, they have a photo on the website. Uh, so you, if you, my father always went to Susie the teller at Citizens Bank in Mooresville every Friday night to cash a check. Well, if you want to set up a, a relationship with Gina online, you can dial in if she's, her picture's bright, that means she's available. If it's dark and that she's talking to another customer. So we've kind of tried to recreate those old banking relationships and play out there. To me, um, all of my success has been about the, the people I've been able to surround myself with and the folks I can get to come to work for me. So uh, we're all out here. We'd love to help anybody who's got a problem. We're, we're happy to listen and see what we can do to help them out. I appreciate your time today. It's It's been a blast. Thank you. Thanks, David.